Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called Superstocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. And today we have a very honored guest with us. He is Safnit Singh, the CEO of Par Technology. And Par Technology is a hardware and software restaurant point of sale solutions service provider. And this company has a very bright prospect ahead. And just a disclosure, we are shareholders ourselves. So to start off, Safnit, being the CEO of Par, could you share with us the history of the company and how did you come to become the CEO? Absolutely. So PAR was founded 53 years ago, originally off of a U.S. Air Force base on the idea that IT services would be a big part of the government spend going forward. So the founders of PAR basically sold IT services. The company was called Pattern Analysis Recognition. And the idea was you could use data to find patterns and maybe predict the future to protect the Defense Department. Ten years into the founding of the company, one of the mothers of the one of the founders ended up franchising a McDonald's store. And she kept complaining there needed to be a better system than the cash register and paper tickets. And so her son and partner built her point of sale terminal going to a store called Radio Shack where they bought some electronic components and in a wood box. Long story short, that product took off. It went from being installed in just her mother's store to dozens of other McDonald's stores, so much so that in 1980, McDonald's approved that product as a, as a, as a McDonald's approved product. And then in 1982, the company went public on McDonald's effectively mandating that every store in the world be a PAR system. PAR took off for the next five, 10 years as a, a very large hardware and services provider, by far the biggest point of sale company. But unfortunately, I would say for the next 25, uh, maybe in 30 years, the company really struggled. And it struggled because it got stuck as a hardware and services company and not a software business. And so as customers realized that the more important product in your point of sale terminal is the software inside, not the hardware, they started buying great software and then attaching PAR's hardware to it. And so PAR became almost a secondary sale and attachment sale. To rectify that, at the end of 2014, PAR bought a small SaaS product called Brink. Brink at the time was, you know, not really a business, more of a product. It was installed in a few hundred stores. And under par stewardship, the product exploded. It went from 300 stores to nine or 10,000 five years later and very much turned the, the fortunes and, and, and tides of par. I got involved with par personally as a member of the board in April of 2018. I was brought in really because the board wanted someone with a little bit of software experience, some, a growth mentality, and I think some diversity of, of perspective. You know, the board was relatively homogenous, didn't really come from the software space. And so they wanted someone to kind of add that perspective. And, you know, it's a long story, but eight months into my tenure on the board, I ended up becoming the CEO of the company, really not out of choice, but out of acute need. The company had gotten into a bunch of messes. There was an SEC investigation, a DOJ investigation, prior CFO had gone to jail. There was two activist shareholders. And more importantly, the product was starting to get off the rails. Customers were getting angry. The product was growing so fast that the company couldn't keep up with it. And the company's culture was just very, very destructive. And so we as a board were looking for someone to come in. We 
couldn't find someone to take the job. And so when I came in, the idea was, you know, could we sell the company and get out of this thing as opposed to, you know, me being the long-term solution. And again, long story short, while we tried to potentially market the company, I went and said, hey, let me see if I can fix this. And, you know, within a couple of months, we were able to get a lot done. We were able to restructure the balance sheet. We were able to restructure the organization. We were able to start putting a vision and strategy on where we could take this company. And, you know, I said, hey, I think uh, rather than trying to sell the company, we can really make this into something special and build this as an enterprise platform to run your restaurant. And so at that point, I decided to, to stay on board and take it for a spin. Uh, and that was about a little over two years ago. Awesome. You know, when we first come across Power Technology as a company, what strikes us as really interesting is the software business is growing incredibly fast. But what really cemented our investment thesis was because of you. Uh, when you decided to become CEO, we decided that, you know, we are going to invest alongside with you and become a long-term owner of the company. So to allow the listeners to know a bit more about your background, I'm sure most of them do not know, but you're actually a very successful entrepreneur and investor, having founded your own companies and, you know, you were managing partner and co-founder of Terra Holdings which is a holding company or niche software business. So could you share more about your personal uh, background with us? Sure. So I started out my career on Wall Street as an investment banker. I did two years of investment banking, which is a very traditional path here in the US. From there, I spent a year at a large hedge fund. You know, I always dreamed of, I had gotten into business because I had gotten obsessed with Warren Buffett in university. And that's all I wanted to learn and do. And I realized that uh, a hedge fund is not the best place to learn that. Or maybe the one that I was at, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, I really wanted to make long-term bets. And so I'd always had a very entrepreneurial personality. I'd always been starting small businesses in, in high school and college and came up with this idea with a couple uh, partners on the idea of, of trading hard asset. And the idea was that everything else that we have is relatively liquid, particularly our financial assets, our you know, stocks, bonds, cash, so on and so forth. But there's all this wealth tied up into other assets that aren't nearly as liquid. And so we started with hard assets, it narrowed into precious metals. And we built you know one of the first large fast-growing financial technology companies in New York on the idea of, of making precious metals liquid, where you could buy, type in a ticker, trade, store, a bar of gold or silver. And what it taught me early on was a couple of things. One was that how powerful these waves are. When we had started the company, I remember how challenging it was to get banks to sort of work with a young, small company. You know, fintech wasn't really a thing. It was, but they were, they were so scared. I remember our first customer wanted us to literally deposit millions of dollars in a bank account that we couldn't touch for some long period of time in case we weren't around. It was so hard to innovate. And so it really taught me the, the scars and the wounds of how hard you have to be in, to be an entrepreneur. And I think that was a, a very grateful for that because it sort of made any roadblock doable. I, you know, we did our first big round because we needed money to deposit for a, a bank account not because we needed to run operations. The second thing it taught me was the power of, of software. Once our product was installed, it's very hard to rip out. The switching costs are enormous. And so as I transitioned out of that business, I had started thinking a lot about if Warren Buffett was 30 years old, what would he be working on? And the idea that came to me uh, very vividly was, I think he'd be buying enterprise software companies. I think he would look at those businesses and say, while they are technology businesses, and he's historically been averse to those, they possess every characteristic of a great business that he looks into. They have strong brands. They have pricing power, probably better than, than almost any other industry in the world. They have definable moat. And over time, it's one of the few businesses where I think margins actually grow. And so I went out with a, with a partner of mine on this idea, let's create the next Berkshire Hathaway, but let's do it in software. And it was in that journey that we stumbled across PAR. We'd stumbled across Brink, rather, the product within PAR, and had approached the prior team saying, hey, would you engage in potentially carving that business out and selling it to us? And then that's sort of a little bit how PAR first heard about me. And then things sort of, sort of stumbled along. And somehow I ended up on the board of PAR. Along the way, as, as you mentioned, I, I was lucky and and got, you know decent investments and all that, but a lot of my grounding was uh, as an entrepreneur, not as a corporate operator. And I think when I came into Par, that was probably the distinguishing thing that made it work because Par was not a well-run ship. 
part was not sort of something you could just pour capital on and it would work. You, you know, you really needed to get roller sleeves, get in the weeds, almost more like an entrepreneur than, than, than a corporate person. And, and we hired along those lines too. You know, the key leaders we brought in all came more from entrepreneurial backgrounds as opposed to corporate backgrounds. Cool, man. That's really awesome. And also, Stephanie, from my understanding, you were actually one of the earlier investors in Uber and you were talking about um, the venture capital space doesn't have a framework for investing, whereas Warren Buffett has laid out a very clear and precise framework when it comes to compounding wealth. So, you know, what do you see yourself doing at PAR and why do you think PAR stands a chance to thrive and to dominate in its respective field? Yeah, so I think there are different questions, but I'll, let me answer from the parlance. I think that no one will ever create Berkshire Hathaway again, but also the, because the time and place isn't right to create the next Berkshire Hathaway. The opportunity to acquire cheap float, buying businesses on cash flow, you know, these things don't exist today nearly like they did before. And obviously the competitive dynamics have changed tremendously since since he did that. You know, I think the idea of creating a great holding company isn't necessary to replicate that, but to say, what is the in, in a way for you to compound capital for a really long period of time in a way that you think is almost mechanical and i.e. that you can make it repeatable, scalable, that you can bring lots of people to it. And so I think we all discovered at PAR really early on was that the product that PAR sold, Brink, was at the middle of this gigantic cloud transition happening in the restaurant industry, where restaurants were being eaten by software and restaurants were becoming technology companies. And to do that, they needed the effectively an ERP system. They needed their version of that. And that version was the point of sale. And so when I stepped back, I said, wow, this is a relatively big industry that is just at the beginning of this technological innovation. And there is not a product that has really carved out a name as being that product yet in the enterprise community. And so I said, how lucky are we that we stumbled on the product that, that, that's already in this very large industry that is about to take off? And so I always tell you know investors, which is, listen, there's all this data. We can walk through TAM. We can walk through all of it. But when you're in the beginning of a cloud transition, it changes and moves so quickly that no one ever gets it right. Uh, because all the software that you buy today will be a fraction of what you buy five years ago. You know, And I always say, think about when you first started adapting your personal life to the cloud. You know, Maybe it was the iPhone. Look at your spend of cloud products today than five years ago. Look at your Netflix, look at your Dropbox, look at your security system at your home. Um, it's incredible. And enterprise software is no different, except it's probably more robust. And so, you know, I always remember when people, you know, 10 years ago used to say, well, I'm, I'm going to move to AWS and, or, or Azure and it's going to cut, you know, cut my bills. None of them have cut their bills because the demand for productivity software on top of it to manage it um, has continued to grow. And so to me, it's not so much about here's the number of stores times the price point, which, which it should be now. It's about are you riding the white, right wave? And so even I always say joke, if, if we're even average, you know, I think we're pretty good, but if we're not, we're still going to grow relatively quickly because the industry we're in is growing at that pace. And there isn't really a dominant competitor that we're, we're, we're worried about today. So it's a long answer, but I think the key part for us is that we are in an industry that is changing incredibly quickly, that is adopt, coming towards us. And our job is to just execute. And usually as an investor, as you probably know, it's a lot harder to find where to put your capital. We, we know where to put our capital. And so for us, it's execution game as opposed to trying to find where to put it. Right. So ever since you became the CEO uh, for about two years now, you have done two acquisitions. And, you know, as a shareholder, we are very uh, impressed with what you have done. And we think that those are strategic acquisitions. You bought a back office software called uh, Restaurant Magic. I believe now it's called Data Central and a recent loyalty software provider called Punch. And recently in the AGM for PA, you have mentioned about software as a platform or some people call it platform as a service. Could you give us some examples of what other industries and how you see that restaurant industry developing to towards embracing this platform. Because for an example, you know, I believe you mentioned a company like called Twilio and Twilio is one of the communication platforms that businesses now go to to solve their communication needs uh, within the organization. So it has become an incredibly valuable platform. And, you know, how do you see yourself developing our own, you know, platform as a service for the restaurant industry? 
absolutely. I, I think Twilio is an incredible example of a software product that charges off of usage as opposed to number of seats. But <clears throat> let me back up for a second and say that, you know, we've gone through these waves of software. You know, first was, let me sell you a large license and then a maintenance contract. And then we moved to SaaS. And the way that SaaS was priced to me was very much a vestige of the license uh, maintenance contract, which was how many seats am I selling you? And instead of charging that license and maintenance, I'm going to charge you an ongoing fee because I'm going to constantly be updating the product and delivering value to you. And so uh, if you look at our restaurant business as an example, the way that this, all the SaaS companies, whether it's Square or Toast or us, price our customers is how many terminals are you buying from us? How many point of sale terminals? And then we charge you a SaaS fee per terminal. So if you're a two-store terminal, you're paying one price. If you're a four-store terminal, you're arguably paying twice that price. And the irony there is that it doesn't necessarily ascribe value in the right way. 10 years ago, if you were a forced terminal store, you probably were using our systems more, right? Because you probably had more customers. That's why you had four terminals. But today in the restaurant industry, your orders are no longer coming in just from in-store. They're coming in from your own online website. They're coming in from your mobile app. They're coming in from DoorDash. They're coming in from Uber Eats. And so your system is pinging that those terminals or the, our system rather, irrespective of the number of terminals, the volume is going up. And maybe this, this is best sort of explained uh, or example during the pandemic where we had restaurants that had literally one terminal that were pinging our system more than restaurants that had 10 terminals. Yet the 10 terminal system was paying us a lot more than the one terminal person. That doesn't seem fair to the 10 terminal person, right? Because they're, they're getting less value, but are paying us more based on this, this idea that they have more terminal. And I think this is really akin to all software products. I look at the products that I use today. In our company, we use a bunch of Atlassian products. And I strive to the Atlassian products because I like to see what our product team is doing. But you know, Kevin, I probably use those products once a week or once every other week. Yet I pay the same fee for my license, my, my seats on that product as the, the head of product who's in there five hours a day. And so again, value is not being attributed. I'm probably overpaying. He's probably underpaying. And so I think in general, software will move to a model that's usage-based where value is being paid for as it's being used. And so I think in the restaurant industry, when the dynamic is no longer how many people are coming into a store, but how often are you getting that system? You'll move from here's your SaaS fee by terminal or here's your SaaS fee by store into here's your SaaS fee by pings, by transactions. And the companies that have done this already are outside of Twilio are all the payment companies. So Adyen, Stripe, Square, you know, generally these are transactional models built on a per transaction basis. And so if you don't use their rails, you don't pay any fee. If you use it, you pay a fee. And so I had a dream of one day going to customers and saying, here's the PAR platform. It is free. You customer can decide, do you want to turn on our loyalty comp product? Do you want to turn on our back office product? Do you want to turn on our point of sale product? You can actually turn none of them on. You can turn them all on, or you can build on top of them, or you can buy other products and plug it into it. That is completely up to you. But for the things that move through our system, we will charge you a, a, a transactional fee for it. And the bet that we will be taking is by not having that sort of monthly fee, but the transactional volume will continue to grow, which is a bet that I think is that we, we believe will happen for a long time. So that's that's the view of uh, software as a platform. And I think that will continue to happen across all industries. And it's not so much that I think software companies are trying to steal money from customers or pull more revenue. And it's more about aligning usage to price. Awesome. I think that's a really fair model. And going forward, I think it's not only a fair, but a rather destructive model whereby we are really looking to be the partner for our customers and we really want to have a win-win situation and a very healthy relationship, you know, for this to be sustainable and long-term. Um, what kind of upside, you know, does it unlock for the modern restaurant and, and why would they adopt it? Because from my understanding, major restaurants, they do not like to be tied to one single vendor or tied to be a one single platform because it increases the risk on their end. You know, do you agree with this? And, and what do you see is the future development for this 
Yeah, so I think I probably disagree with the premise in the sense that in years past, I completely, restaurants don't want a single source. It's, it's a little bit like par sells hardware. We don't want a single source of hardware because if they go down, we can't service. But in, in a world of, of modern software, it's a stack, right? It's a collection of products that you're putting together to build that, that experience to your customer. And I think what we have observed is that restaurants are overwhelmed by technology. They're going through this, this wave of transformation so quickly and honestly unprepared, not their fault, there's unexpectedly. And so I imagine myself as a CIO or CEO of a large restaurant chain. And literally in the last few years, you've gone from a world where most of your customers would drive up into your store, place their food and leave to fast forward three years. Every customer now expects every restaurant to have the same functionality as Amazon. They want a mobile app. They want pickup. They want fast delivery. They want to track their food. They want to leave reviews. They want seamless payments. They want all of that. And so this amazing change in consumer behavior is now forcing the restaurants to backward integrate and figure out how to deliver an Amazon experience while still delivering that beautiful in-store experience. Now imagine how you can do that without incredibly well-connected software. You can't. And so Kelvin, one of the saddest things to me about this entire growth in restaurant technology is that the restaurant technology companies have won, but the restaurants have not. I think if you surveyed the restaurants over the last few years, they would say, has technology made your life better? And for the most part, they'd probably say, eh, you know, maybe a little bit. Has it made it more profitable? Maybe not. And so the technology companies have extracted incredible amounts of wealth from these restaurants, but they have not delivered the value back because it's been just about keeping up. And so back to your question, I think the idea is that the restaurants do want an intent platform, but they don't want to be locked to that platform. They want to be able to do that. And so our idea of here is here's your platform. You configure it. You control the end experience. You control the design, the UI. You focus on the stuff that matters. And so I think the way it'll work, Kelvin, is that restaurants over time, hopefully by the part platform, everything that touches the guests is really where they focus their time, where they're really focused on saying, you know, I want the app to feel just like it is when you walk into my store. I want the website to feel just like it is when you use a mobile app. And that's the stuff where I think restaurants spend their time because that's what they've always been great at, which is the guest experience. Right. That's really awesome. Thanks for giving us uh, so much detail about the platform that Par is trying to build. I think, you know, it's going to be really interesting down the road. And I'd like to link, you know, that previous question a little bit more onto our total addressable market. Because previously, Par had this point of sale software Brink and the addressable market was about 700,000 restaurants in the US alone as from the investor presentation slide. And we're looking to earn about $2,000 in yearly subscription from each customer. And about half of that 700,000 restaurant would be a suitable target for Par. And that kind of brings our addressable market to 100 million in ARR, annual recurring revenue. However, that addressable market seems to be severely understated and misunderstood by most traditional investors, you know, given how much software the, rest, the modern restaurant would need. You know, what, what are they missing out over here? Why do people keep yeah. getting the addressable market wrong? Yeah, so let's, let's if we use your examples and say there are 700,000 restaurants in the United States that use a point of sale system and half of them are roughly our addressable market. Two years ago when we inherited the company, our average customer was about $1,800, $1,900 a store. That's now whatever, around 21 so that's grown over time. But since that time, um, we as PAR now sell three products. We don't sell one product. We sell a back office product. So our point of sale product is about 2,100 bucks a year. Our back office product is about 1,500 bucks a year. And our loyalty product is 1,200 to 1,500 bucks a year. And so we've grown our TAM by a new product. And I use that example to say, even if you just assume that there was a flat number of stores, the TAM grows because the number of products being bought. You know, at the same time, we're building two brand new products today. We will certainly do additional M&A. And so the TAM is expanding by the number of products significantly. And it will continue to grow over time. And we can talk about that later, where, where these products are going to go and why that, that those number of products will increase for a long time. But the, 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 the actual value, if you look at the inputs of TAM, which is units and price, price is going to grow incredibly because new products are, need to be built and, and service that customer. Now on the unit side, um, I think that is where we also have an incredible amount of growth because today we service a very narrow part. We serve large QSR restaurants and fast casual. We will be moving into table servers. We'll move into international. We'll move into other parts of that leverage can leverage our point of sale product. And so over time, we'll see growth there today. But just today, 
we are a, a fraction of the industry. We're what, whatever, 12, 13,000, I don't remember what it is, uh, restaurants out of 700,000. I mean, we, we are a drop in the bucket. And so I think there's an incredible amount of growth in front of us, both in the number of units, but also in the, the number of products we're going to sell. Just now you mentioned software, you're going to, we're going to be likely making more acquisitions on the software front. So, you know, ever since you became CEO, the two acquisitions are really synergistic. Now we have a back office software that helps with, you know, labor, accounting, inventory management and loyalty software platform. So I assume this software platform that allows our customers to control their innovative future and they're all going to be integrated into Brink to become that one platform. So what are some of the challenges, you know, for these integrations in terms of technological challenges or employee culture clashes? Because they are after all from uh, different companies. So in the meantime, while you are making this integration, are they operating independently of each other? It's it's a great question. It is obviously a huge challenge. M&A, I always say, looks great on paper always because you're just taking inputs that you can't verify and putting them together and it looks great. The cultural stuff is always what gets it very hard. So um, we spend a lot of time trying to get this right because it is the, the risk that we take. So first things first. So we believe in having one combined vision, which is the platform that we're trying to build. But we do believe in decentralized execution. And so the way that we have operated to date when we acquire a business is we quickly combine the vision and say, this is a, this is a vision we're going to, to build. And then we look to combine the, the product roadmaps over time. Our acquisitions are a little bit different than you know these great, amazing holding companies in the sense that they, they integrate together. They're not actually, when you combine Punch with Brink, there's actually incredible product you can build for customers. It's you, if you don't want to lose that ability for these systems to talk to each other. So we combine product and technology, we combine product and technology, but then the execution, we keep very decentralized. So you don't lose that the specifics of that culture or that DNA moving forward. And it's a really active process. And I think what, what, what we have part of shown is that we are not corporate takeover folks. We look for the best talent. And in, in both of these acquisitions, even our, our third one, our, our headset business, we've always found that they're, ironically, it's disproportional. The talent that we acquire ends up running much larger parts of par than vice versa. And so we're very humble in saying, you probably have done a great job. And, and I think we'll see that at a punch where a number of the punching will take very senior leaderships apart because they're fantastic and they're great. And so to your question, how do we manage cultures? I think they come in and they feel that we're being honest and empathetic because we're saying, listen, your leader is probably going to become our leader and so on and so forth. And so they see that there's great opportunity for them to become part of this bigger vision. And so our key to that success is upfront in that acquisition process. We really try to understand the people, the culture, what are we getting into? And, it, and once we have a good feel for that, we can then lay out a plan for them to come together. And oftentimes I think what engenders the employees to stay is that there is a much bigger vision, a much bigger set of opportunities. And they see right up front that, if they're, it, that it's a meritocratic environment. You don't have to have been from par to get the big promotion. You can be from any of the other companies and you can get that promotion. And I think because they see that right away, it gives them the, uh, the belief that they're going to be treated fairly too. So, you know, the next question I'm, I'm about to ask, you know, you can choose to, to answer or not because we, I do not want to be, you know, giving away privileged information to competitors. So, uh, you know, in our pursuit for a unified platform, what are some of the missing pieces of software in our offerings, you know, or what kind of potential acquisition targets are we looking to complete our software platform for our customers? So I think uh, I'll first say that you know, the, a platform will never be complete in, in a growing environment because there's all this new functionality. And, and I would tell you that two years from now, there's going to be all these products that will look so obvious that we couldn't believe we didn't realize today. But today we have a few glaring holes that we are spending time on. The digital ordering side, we, we are not in any part of digital ordering, whether that be digital orders through your phone, through the website. We have great partners there, but we're not in the flow of that today. And so as more and more orders come outside the store, we need to be in that flow somehow. So, so we're looking at interesting opportunities there. I would say the other end of the spectrum, that's 
fulfillment side, it's hard to be the end-to-end platform if you don't also want one helping fulfill. So whether that be delivery management, driver management, all sorts of stuff back there that restaurants are now spending a ton of money on. And then I think in the middle, right, what's the kitchen of the restaurant of the future look like? So, you know, part of the reason I'm so bullish on restaurant technology is if you think about the, the, the restaurant, again, just a few years ago, the idea that having software to manage your kitchen wasn't really necessary. You had people come in your store, maybe you had a couple of Uber Eats orders. You know, today you have orders from Uber Eats, DoorDash, online ordering system, mobile systems, curbside pickup, QR code ordering, and your drive-through, and people still come in your store. And that kitchen needs to be smart to handle all that volume, predict the times to cook each type of order, and then to figure out what orders does that delivery guy take? It's a lot of software. It's a lot of work. And so I think that's another area you'll see us do a lot of uh, innovation in. All right. So to ask a little bit more on, you know, acquisitions, are we really going to pursue this buy and build model? And also, could you share with the listeners a bit more about your acquisition framework for PAR? Because I know, you know, not only you're a fan of uh, Warren Buffett uh, and Berkshire Hathaway, but you're also a fan of Constellation software. And, you know, for a company like Constellation, they have made over, you know, 500 acquisitions acquiring small vertical market software companies. And the CEO, Mark Leonard, deliberately focused on small niche VMS uh, software when there's little incentive for the larger software companies to kind of compete and you know combined with a disciplined capital allocation approach and have a very high hurdle rate Mark managed to compound the value of the company at rates well above 20% for almost you know, two decades so you had mentioned like, your acquisition strategy with a focus on product instead of just buying revenues and you want to create a better unified commerce platform you know for past customers so could you share more details with us on these um, future acquisitions and our buy and build model if we are going to you know do something similar like Constellation so we have a buy and build model because it's, it's the industry is moving quickly. And, you know, candidly, I think Power was not yet in the ability to build new product. All of our efforts the first two years have been on fortifying our bring product because it was so challenged when we came in. So there wasn't the opportunity to really build new product yet. This market was turning quickly and we wanted to make sure we had footholds into it. And so we've, we've ended up being acquirers because we wanted to fill product holes. And that's probably the difference us between us and, and a holding company like Constellation or anything else is that we're building a product, right? In a growth market, as opposed to buying mature product in, uh, in mature markets and and reinvest in cash flow. So it requires a different framework because it's a completely different model. And so the way that we look at MA is first stepping back and saying, are we buying a business? Are we buying revenue or are we buying a product? And because we are a product company, we need to focus on are we buying a product? And the, the framework I look at is very simple. If we buy a product, combine it with our existing products, is a customer getting more value? If yes, we, it sort of can, you know goes to the next leg, sort of next filter. Then we sort of go into and say, hey, is this a good product? Is this a good? And that's where I think we're really good, which is, is this a good software business? Obviously, there's obviously what's churn, what's retention, so on and so forth. But then we get in really deep, which is what is actually happening underneath that? You know, why is churn so low? It, why is retention so high? Is it actually there for the good reasons? Is it will it fit into our financial model? And then we go into and understand the cultural elements uh, of that business. And then we'll figure out, you know, hey, is this a, a price that we can we we feel that it's accretive to us? We are really focused on growth, and so we're not looking to buy stuff that's dilutive to our growth. And we're also really focused on products that we can leverage our existing GNA base. And so, you know, I don't think you'd see us buy stuff that requires us to double Salesforce. I don't think you'll see us buy stuff that requires us to keep not be able to rationalize parts of what's happening there. So I think for us, it's about, does a product fit synergistically to the rest of what we're doing? Is a customer getting more value? And are the financial metrics as good or better than what we have today? If those three things check out, we will actually take a deep look at the business. Okay, and so, if you look at it, ironically, every acquisition we've done is a better financial model than the business that we have. Everyone's higher margin. Everyone has a little bit higher growth, better retention metrics. And so I think we've continued to make the business better as we've added these other products. Right. So that's why we, you know, we are really excited whenever, you know, we see an, an acquisition being done because we know that, you know, we can count on you to take care of shareholders and do the best for the company. 
talking a little bit about acquisitions, I would like to you know understand more about compensation policies. What are your thoughts on on compensation policies for our operating managers uh, after the acquisition? For example, Constellation compensates all their levels of management based on profitability and growth, and there's also a requirement for you know operating managers to reinvest more than seventy percent of their after tax incentive bonus into shares of the company, which are held for a lockup period for for several years. So you have shared in the past about tying compensation to ROIC. Could you elaborate more about aligning compensation policies? of our operating managers and executive management teams with long-term growth of the business. Do you think tying management's compensation with long-term performance of the company stock, you know, a good policy to encourage, you know, skin in the game? Yeah, so I think there are a lot of ways to get skin in the game. You know, I think the Constellation one is pretty amazing. Although I think what I've looked at is it's very hard to effectuate that in, in a modern world where, you know, one of the things that I think is challenging in, in any software business today is that the war for talent is real and it's significant. And so, you know, what I, I, I always find challenging is can you get that done when the next competing offer has none of that? And and so you have to kill you know, the vision and, and all has to tie, right? The vision, the excitement. So I very much do believe in the compensation driving behavior. A lot of the early success at PAR, I believe, was not the result of anything other than setting the right compensation targets for individuals as opposed to corporate targets for the company. That drove a lot of what you saw. So for us at PAR, the big change that I think we have versus most companies is that we've dramatically increased the variable portion of compensation as opposed to the fixed portion of compensation, such that your salary is good, you're safe, you're not worried, but where you can become wealthy is on the variable compensation. And that variable compensation is tied to a combination of, do we hit the corporate target and have you hit your individual target? And they both have to work in order for you to receive your full bonus or more well beyond your bonus. And I think early on when I came to PAR, you know, I was a little bit lucky. I wasn't your typical candidate to run a public company. I didn't want to run a public company. But the, the thing that I remember being really frustrated on was that most compensation policies are really, really structured based off of what third-party consultants tell you to do. There's not a lot of science in there. And so, you know, my first, I don't want to say fight, but my first struggle was I want a compensation policy that has massive stratification. I don't want everyone to get there. And so generally in a public company, a company sets a corporate target, the company has a target, everybody gets their full bonus. That is literally how almost like 99% of companies work. And I went and said, hey, that makes no sense because even if the company hits this target, if I didn't do my job and the company has target, like why should I get my full bonus? And so what we did at PAR and we still did today at PAR is that you have to hit your personal target and the company has to hit its target. Now, if the company hits its target and you don't hit your personal target, you will get significantly less than your target bonus. So if your target bonus is $100, you may end up $50. But those quote unquote $50 that you lost then get reallocated to the top performers of the company. And so the people at the top end up making significantly more than they expected, which is an amazing feeling to give to people. People at the bottom do not. And it's a culture that I think creates a culture of both teamwork and performance because the team still has to hit its, its goal, but you have to hit yours. And that's generally how we believe at PAR to drive performance. And so we are really focused on the operating performance and that's how we drive it, which is we set your personal targets, we set the corporate targets, and, and then, we, then we sort of we run to those. And then we spend a lot of money on variable compensation and we want to because it does tie you into the company because as you build up that stock position, you care more and more about the business. And so as a really interesting example, when I got to PAR, there were maybe 15, maybe 20, but really 15-ish people that had equity in, across all thousand employees at PAR at the time, 15 people. Today, we're up to 300 or something like that. Um, and so we've done a good job of bringing in people into the, into the win. Cool. So if we're going to continue making more uh, acquisitions down the line, I would like to pick your brains on what do you think of you know decentralized management. You know, one of um, the success behind Berkshire and Constellation is their decentralized management structure. It allows the operating managers to focus on what they do best and not have their performance constrained you know, by overreaching bureaucracy and often encourages uh, operating managers to retain their position, heading their respective operating subsidiaries after being acquired and allowing you know the preservation of the deep industry knowledge and customer relationships that are critical to the success of the company. So could you share more if Power would be operating in a similar decentralized management structure? Or do you have any other operating structures in mind? 
Yeah, so I, I very much believe in decentralized management. And I think it's, it comes for two reasons. One is, as you talked about, there is an, an accountability and of someone else owning the PL, someone else owning whatever that, that the metrics or the goals are for that. But the second part is that I think it makes life more rewarding. If you work for a company that's got very micromanagey, you know, you end up not really thinking for yourselves. I use the example that when I moved up to the PAR headquarters, uh, you know, I used to use my Google Maps to go to Walmart or go to the grocery store because I, I didn't think. And, you know, it took me six months to remember how to get to Walmart on my own. And, you know, I became just a, a robot. And I think imagine that that's a lot of corporate life in America. You just do what you're told and you try to do as best as you can, as opposed to having to think for yourself. And so a part of the reason that I really believe in decentralized management is not just because it creates amazing accountability, but that it also makes your career and life more rewarding because you're thinking and solving these problems for yourself. So it is a, a big part of our culture is really pushing out uh, decentralized management and trusting our team to execute and letting them make mistakes and then solving those mistakes. And I think that's why we've been able to attract such talent because you're coming in and you're thrown into the mix. And so a great example of this is we started an MBA program at PAR and, you know, I remember the first two people that came in, you know, literally within a few months on the job, maybe not even that, you know, one of them ended up taking over our international business. One of them took over marketing. You know, these are people that were two months on the job, you know, maybe 30 years old. And the idea was you go figure it out. And I can imagine that that's not for everybody, right? I always say it's probably for half the people. Some people love that challenge, which is this is my chance to figure it out, prove myself very quickly and do it. Others feel overwhelmed and they need more support. And so in a decentralized culture, it creates rapid accountability. I think it makes your career more valuable and it allows us as senior managers to figure out who's going to sink or swim quickly. Okay, so I have just two more questions. You know, the, the next question will be on our company's uh, infrastructure to support our growth plans. We, ha- we have a really grand vision, which is to be the largest technology provider to the hospitality industry. And our near-term goal is to, you know, grow in stock base while concurrently developing and building our software platform. You know, one and a half years ago, uh, when we met at PAS office, you shared that we had to slow down our growth because, you know, we had legacy baggages to fix from spending hundreds of hours in software development meetings, you know, to moving away from 30-year-old billing systems and building microservices for our software to make it agile and modular. We needed to rebuild, you know, customers' trust and improve our product. And we have kind of been on the defense fixing, you know, this legacy issue. So, you know, it's been about one and a half years. So are we now ready to, you know, kind of go on the offense while having a product that we are kind of proud of and we are ready to pull that sales and marketing lever to, to grow our install base? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're starting to. So I think you've seen the growth in our bookings, which is a result of us starting to spend money on sales and marketing. And I think that's been a very positive sign. But we are, at for the first time, you know, since I've been at PAR, you know, we feel confident in our product. Now, is a product fixed? No. Is a product broken into microservices where it needs to be? Absolutely not. Those are those are journeys that will take more and more time. But we're at a point where we can start reinvesting and being more aggressive on our roadmap. We can start saying to you, Kelvin, we're actually going to start building out a table service product. You know, that was something people asked me. I said, don't even ask me that for years. You know, we got to get there. We're at a point now where we can talk about building new products. So, you know, 2021 is, was, is a big year for PAR because it's the first year that we're also building new product in, you know, five, six, seven, eight years. We've never really built something new. And so now we're building our new products. And so without question, we are at a point now where we, where we believe the reinvestment in the company is, is, is there and it's starting. And so it's new for us because we haven't done it and it's been firefighting and, and fixing, but it is now turning into that environment, which is how do we grow and build revenue? And that's very exciting. And, you know, to candidly a lot more fun than running around trying to, you know, p- patch up holes. Right. Sorry, just at the top of my mind, there's, there's two more questions regarding our product line. Could you share with us about ParPay? Uh, why is it a superior offering compared to what the existing you know, QSR customers are using? Is there a challenge because some of the existing QSR customers have a long established relationship with their existing payment processors and they're kind of like being locked in into it. So how can we you know, quickly grow that, this segment of the business? 
Parpay is our, our payment offering. And for us, I think our pitch is really simple. The vast majority of restaurants feel that they're being ripped off by their payment processor. They don't know how, they don't understand their bills, but they don't feel like they're being treated fairly. And so we've come in with an incredibly transparent model, which is this is exactly how much we're charging, this is exactly how it works. And th- th- I think that adds a lot of feeling of, of trust. The second thing I think we're, we're pretty good at is we come in and say, because the point of sale system and the payment system are one, you have one throat to choke, one hand to shake. You're not sort of reconciling stuff. And they, they do love that idea of one throat to choke. But the third thing that I think is most exciting over time is that we go in and we say, if we can combine your payment data with your transactional data, with your loyalty data, we have the ability to actually give you insights that you could not get with an independent third-party payment company. Effectively, we could probably tell you who your non-loyalty customers are. We can probably tell you efficiency on labor. We can tell you what cars are working, you know, all sorts of interesting stuff that you couldn't really do well before. And so that, I think that's the third thing. And the last thing, which is probably the most important today, but I hope over time it's not, but today it is, is that we can help you finance the upgrade of your stores. Generally, when someone buys Brink, they're 75, 80% of the time, they're also buying hardware from Park. And when that happens, we if they take on our payments business, it allows us to say, here's the hardware product up front. And because we now have a stream of revenue that we can pull from. So there, it's an interesting offering to our customers. We've had really good feedback so far. And you know, I think we originally thought, hey, this is only available to a small section of our customers. And then we sort of got going and said, hey, our channel partner customers now want this. We never expected that. So now we had to rebuild the product for the channel customers. And then you know, we have we got in some interest uh, in some RFPs for, for our uh, large customers. And so you know, we're still really early, but I do feel um, pretty good about it. Right. I, I believe that is uh, what you have just mentioned. Is it the, the the business that we have, the new offering we had called Par Infinity, whereby we are providing kind of like a hardware as a service to our customers? Yeah. So that's more of our hardware as a service program where you, instead of paying upfront, we'll sort of bill you over time. And that's absolutely part of it. So oftentimes we'll say, take Infinity plus payments and you know we can allow you to come up with something that works for your financial model at, at the individual store level. All right. Regarding for Pape, you know, how can we expect uh, the adoption rate to be like? Are we looking at maybe five percent of our installed base uh, adopting Pape, and then or ten percent in the next following year? So we don't know yet. I think you know I've told people over time. I you know I don't know if it'll be ten percent or half of our base, but it will be a meaningful portion of our base, particularly our new customers. Existing customers generally payment contracts in our industry are three years long, and so you've got to wait for the time of renewal to figure out when that that next opportunity for you to get in there is. All right. So I've just one last question for you. What are some of the questions that you wish more shareholders would ask, which, you know, kind of get overlooked and where do you see power five years from today? So, you know, I think that over time, every industry becomes commoditized. Warren Buffett once, I went to an annual meeting, I remember him asking, find me companies that maintain their margins for 20 or 30 years. And there are very few, oftentimes it's tied because they have, a, they have a brand, but most products become commoditized over time. And, you know, I think software will be no different. I think as software becomes more platform-based, more modular-based, it allows products to churn more. And I think margins will come down and so on and so forth. And so to me, the only defining mode of a company over time is its ability to attract and retain great talent. And if you can keep that engine going, you will be a very special company no matter what industry you are in. And so I think that, you know, I don't know if there's a question around it, but I do think investors focusing on the quality of talent that's coming to a company is a very, very important thing to understand because no CEO knows all the answers. No CEO can sort of predict the future, but if they can attract incredible talent, that talent will figure it out. And that is a, a really important thing to understand because I've always said, par has gone up, par can go straight down, but in the long run, there's no doubt it will go up because we're in the right industry and we're recruiting the best talent in that industry. And so to answer your first question, I think that's the one thing I think investors should focus on. If you're looking for, for, for long run, 
growth. You know, I always joke, who would have thought Par is a ranking in company that, you know, when I got to the business two and a half years ago, we were thinking of doing a, you know, it was 10 weeks from running out of cash. And then literally nine months later, we had Harvard MBAs, we had, you know, more MBAs coming in to, to work here. It, it moved to the middle of nowhere, upstate New York. That type of talent is, is hard to attract, but when they come, you know, they, they know what they're doing. So anyways, that's, that's the first part of your question. In five years, I think Par will have defined the enterprise platform for restaurants and retail and, and hopefully other broader industries over time. And that ability to define that industry will, will be the key for us to being an enormous success. I don't want to be just another company in the industry. I want to have defined that platform. And I hope that platform will be an end-to-end platform covering everything from the customer thinking about going to the customer actually getting their food. And that's really what we want to build PAR for. All right. That's amazing, man. So the way I look at it, you know, to sum it up, I think PAR has a very interesting future ahead. We are in a very early industry that is, you know, adopting the cloud and we are going to be able to increase our R pool gradually over time by being an incredible partner to our customers. We have PAR payment that is uh, likely going to be adopted, you know, very quickly, some point down down the line. And we have an amazing management team focused on capital allocation, building the right talents and culture. And we are building a unified platform to serve restaurants and more. And last but not least, before I let you go, I'd like to... I'd like to ask, can we expect you know a letter to shareholder this year? Because the, the one that you had written uh, last year was was excellent. Yeah, I have I have written one. I have to get it by compliance and, and write it, but I, I hope so. All right. So looking forward to to reading more letters from you in the future. And with that, everyone, I'd like to thank Sevnit Singh for appearing on our podcast and sharing with us so many invaluable insights about power technology. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Tavesor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.